welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. How's it going, guys? It's going great. Beautifully, David. David, how are you? (laughs) Okay, just how are you? (laughs) Tim, stop trying to be the nice guy in the podcast. No, I am the nice guy. David well, always what is, asks, "What does that how make me?" <laughs> yeah, because he's the host. Oh, like so he has to be nice. Yes, he has to ask us how we're doing. And you just like you derail the flow of the show, and you just stop it, and you're like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and you're putting on your comfy shoes and your sweater, and like the whole thing just slows down. Yeah, well, Tim. After Thanks having a lot. listened to the close reads music, I feel like putting on some comfortable slippers and. <laughs> curling up by uh, not quite roaring fire because it's not fall yet, but a oh gosh, a smoldering fire. You want the fire the morning after you like when you've been sleeping all night in your tent? You want that fire at the end of the the night? Yeah, the embers are still a little bit orange. It's enough to kind of like the cold is enough to kind of of like make your senses alive, but you're not going to start shivering. That's the fire that I want. Still okay. some embers left over in the morning. That was super specific. It just makes me think of being up at 5 a.m. Because you know when you're camping and you wake up and like, what else are you going to do? You might as well get up. You're cold in your tent. Might as well stoke the fire. <sighs> might as well stoke the fire. The sun's the coming the up. Kids. Oh, now we're talking about camping with my kids. That's a whole different thing. And I'm just thinking, I'm going to go camping with you guys so I can stay in the tent in my sleeping bag until y'all have breakfast and coffee and a nice fire going, and then I'll come out. Fair enough. Close Reads Camping. Let's make this a thing. <laughs> we could we could do uh, some podcasts about ghost stories around the camp. Close Reads Camping trademark sign. <laughs> so, it might be hard to get a good signal. Wi-Fi yeah, it might be. <laughs> so we are here to talk about Gilead. We only have a couple more episodes left. How crazy is that? Yeah, we're getting close to the end. I'm looking at my book open to, uh, what do we read through? Page 190. And 188. I, yeah, 188. Oh, 188. And I see not many pages left. I thought you were going to say, we're almost to the end, and I'm still waiting for a plot. <laughs> no, 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 no. I feel like we, I feel like, well, we can talk about that. David's probably got something to introduce. Well... You mean like I need to talk about New College Franklin, our sponsor? Exactly. Yeah, well, our friends over at New College Franklin have been bringing you this podcast during August and September, and they have a prospective student weekend coming up. And I think, Angelina, you know something about that, right? Yes, I'm going to be there. And if you are anywhere near, you need to come and see me. And are you really, to my talk. I am going to be there Friday night. Well, I'm going to be more than Friday night, but I will be speaking open to the public Friday night at New College. But I'll What's also be your talk going to be around. on? Uh, I'm giving a talk call from the Odyssey to the Avengers, how to understand every story. Nice. I want to hear Thanks, that. Thanks, Mr. Talk. Rogers. You totally should. Come on. <laughs> All the neighborhood helpers are going to be there. Terrific, including Tommy the Toy Engine. <laughs> That's the wrong show. Oh, whoops. <laughs> The trolley, the trolley in Mr. That's Rogers' right, the neighborhood. Trolley, that's right, that's David right. David has literally just thrown himself off the chair. His face says, I have lost control of the show. I don't even know what to do with you, Tim. So anyway. Sorry, sorry. I need to, like, I'll rein it in. Sorry, David. Back to New College, oh, Franklin. You need to spend more Tom, time with little kids so you Tom, stop kidding. Tommy the what? I didn't know I was freelancing. <laughs> I didn't know. 
I hesitate. I'm about, I, I feel like I should call people out and tell them to, to Facebook shame you for that mistake, but I'm, I would never do that because I'm the nice guy. Gonna, I, I feel like it's going to happen anyway now. I repent in dust and ashes, David. Well, if you are looking for a college that can come alongside you and kind of continue the work that you've been doing in your school or in your home, um, the work of you know, teaching the liberal arts in a Christian environment built around conversation and contemplation, the New College Franklin might be a good option for you. So head over to newcollegefranklin.org to learn more about what they offer and to learn more about that prospective student weekend, prospective student weekend coming up uh, that Angelina is going to be speaking at, and that is later this month. What is that? September 29th is yeah, okay. the kickoff for the weekend. So this will air September 22nd, so you'll have a week to figure that out if you're in the area. And, of course, if you want to just visit at any other time, you can do that as well. So you, And you can learn how to do that at newcollegefranklin.org. So thanks to Greg Wilbur and the entire New College team for sponsoring the, the podcast this summer. Um, and then speaking of sponsoring the podcast, we have launched, uh, as you probably know by now, a Patreon account for the show. There are four tiers which you can... Uh, become a patron for us under (laughs) (laughs) words are hard i know words are hard um but those tiers are for two dollars it's the skimmer level for five dollars it's the bookworm level for ten dollars it's the bibliophile level and the savant level is twenty dollars those are monthly contributions got a bunch of cool rewards uh uh close read swag uh we are just ordering t-shirts today we've got new mugs coming out for specifically for patrons a whole new design um, oh, I didn't know it was a new design. A new design, what? yep. Nobody told me that. We've got bookmarks, um, and then, of course, we're going to do lots of bonus content. So uh, you might have noticed that I recorded an interview last week with Christine Perrin that ran on Monday, where we talked about Gilead. So a lot of episodes like that are going to be for patrons, you know, at any level. If you Even if you contribute $2 a month, you'll get bonus episodes like that. We're going to do Q&A episodes like we normally do, but we're going to have longer ones with more questions and different bonus content for patrons. And um, Christine is also going to come on in the future to do a patron-only episode for uh, people who want to just just hear a discussion on Home and Lila, the follow-ups to Gilead, uh, with spoilers and all that kind of stuff. So that'll be on uh, available. Um, we're going to do we're going to have lots of great content ideas for for patrons. So if you are interested in contributing uh, and making sure that this show can keep happening, uh, we would appreciate it. Any contribution of any amount goes a long way towards uh, Angelina's masseuse. So yes, um, yes, yeah. And I just want to say this too because you didn't mention that one of the bonuses is that you can get download access to all the talks that Tim and I have given over the years at Cersei conferences. That's and right. I actually met someone. I was speaking at a conference this weekend, and she said, "Well, I don't actually listen to close reads, but I'm going to." I'm a patron because it's way cheaper a way to get all of your talks. So. <laughs> oh, nice. That's great. Well, why didn't you say, why don't you listen to Close Well, I did. I did. And she gave me the, you know, I'm way behind kind of speech. She's like, I, she listens occasionally. Okay. But anyway, it was just cool because different, you know, you can get a lot of different things. You're also, if you're a patron, you're going to get to vote and help us choose future books. So we'll give options and patrons will get to vote. And there's just going to be lots of good content on there. Um, we want to do some live video stuff. Uh, Tim, when next time you're in the area, when you come through, we should record some live video. Um, I'm excited about this. Just all kinds stuff. of stuff. This like is gonna that. be cool. So That'll be, be cool. in November, and that uh, all right, excellent. Yeah, we'll queue it up. Also, we we do have close reads T-shirts for the Savant level, and we're going to be giving away one as soon as our Twitter. We have a new Twitter account specifically for close reads. It's at Close Reads Pod, and when we get to 200 followers, we're going to give away 
one t-shirt to one of the followers. So 200 followers is not that much. And your odds are actually relatively decent considering a lot of the other giveaways we do where like there's 14,000 people on our Facebook page or whatever. So, um, <laughs> it's, so if you can help us get to 200, so if you're on Twitter, head over there, go to at close reads pod, retweet stuff. I'm, I've been posting quotes from the books, um, things like that. Um, it's a quick way to get content. And then also just, uh, we've been retweeting, you know, other interesting articles on, on books, on authors, um, other podcasts, things like that. So, um, just another way to, to get access to us. So, all right, all that's out of the way. Let's talk Gilead. Shall we? We shall. We shall. So 160 to 188 is what we read this week. Tim, I, I actually want to hear what your question is. Angelina called you out for having questions about plot or something like that. Um, but you said, oh, there's something we can talk about later. So well, let's start with you. If you have something you're excited to talk about, then we should probably start there. Well, I, I feel like... Because we... I've done no preparation. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been designing t-shirts 24-7. He's, he's been a busy man. Seriously, I've been here all morning. It's just been t-shirt madness, bookmark madness. I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I prepare for this show. So <laughs> I want it to feel like all my hosting is just easy and takes Completely no work. And it's just, organic. It's natural. Right, he exactly. definitely does not have a filing cabinet on wheels that he wheels in. <laughs> and as we talk about this, I want you to get this image in your head. As we mention different topics, he jumps up and pulls out that cross-referenced file folder with page numbers. Right, right. Tim, don't so come so you know marriage. whether or not this is true. <laughs> Prodigal son, right. aging, beauty. He's got it. Boom, file folder. There's a reason we need to do this Patreon because it's a full-time job for me now. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, I is. believe that. All right. So anyway, Tim, go on. Well, for me, this section that we just read, one section to, excuse me, 160 to 188, was a very um, focused part of the book, meaning it, it seems like our – author or our yeah our author narrator john ames his he meanders a little bit which is part of the pleasure of the reading is we kind of like wind like this brook through a meadow and we see you know one part of his life in one bend and another part of his life in another bend but it seems like since the last reading we have really narrowed down to his relationship his kind of his fear about jack Bowden. Um, and I, because I read through 190, I'm going to give myself the liberty of reading a couple of paragraphs from 190 that kind of summarize the, the reading from this week. Is that okay, you guys? No. Uh, <laughs> the bottom of 190. Having looked over these thoughts I set down last night, I realize I have evaded what is for me the central question. That is, how should I deal with these fears I have? That Jack Bowden will do you and your mother harm just because he can just for the sly unanswerable meanness of it you have already asked about him twice this morning harm to you is not harm to me in the strict sense and that is a great part of the problem he could knock me down the stairs and i would have worked out the theology of forgiving him before i reached the bottom but if he harmed you in the slightest way i'm afraid theology would fail me Go on. I know this is riveting <laughs> podcasting oh, I, here. I, I wasn't trying to make a cliffhanger. It just seems like that's a real adequate summary of what has been roiling around in John Ames's belly for the last 
50, 60 pages. And we have finally gotten some backstory to explain his great mm-hmm. suspicion, right? Yeah. That he's just, he's grown up being a boy who causes trouble yeah. just for the sake of causing trouble. Just for the sake of causing trouble. He likes the mail, but he, he almost detonates John Ames's mailbox. He, <laughs> he takes a Model T and drives it a few miles away and then walks back and gives no explanation until much later in his life that he was the one that abducted the Model T car. And then it gets passed around and a whole family gets arrested. And <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. He just, he just causes mischief. And it's not – that word mischief in this book has a lot more of a serious tone and a heavy definition than – the word mischief today like if i say david you're up to mischief it's almost it's it sounds really good natured coming out of john ames's mouth it sounds almost it sounds very it's a heavy hard thing to accuse somebody of can i uh, can i ask you a separate but related question yeah how do you say the word mischievous the way you just said it instead of have you ever heard have you ever heard people say mischievous Oh, wait, maybe I say it that way. I think I say mischievous. I had this existential crisis last night because we were at dinner and this cat walked by our dining room window, sort of, and the boys look outside and one of the boys runs over the window and he's just kind of watching it and he goes, cats are mischievous. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I thought are we saying mischievous, mischievous or mischievous? <laughs> and I had an existential crisis about the way I have taught my kids to say the word because I have no idea what I say. Anyway... <laughs> Have you, worked th- have you worked through that, David? I, He's got a therapy appointment as, later. As you can see, I'm still I'm still working through it. She's gonna hypnotize him <laughs> and then show him the word, and he's gonna have to read it. Exactly. Yeah. From a peaceful state. So it's funny that you bring up uh, the idea of Jack, young Jack's mischief, mischievousness, <laughs> um, because I was thinking about whether or not Jack, I mean John. The names are confusing. John is offering any sympathy to young Bowden because I read it. I was thinking about it and I was noticing in myself a sense of sympathy towards him Mm. because it seems like, you know, there's that whole line about it's nice. What does he say? It's nice. It must have been nice to have a calling and yes. take an identity from your father or something like that. Yes, and he takes offense at it. And it's, and he talks about how his transgressions were, on 182, his transgressions were sly and lonely. Mm. And then he says, how lonely would a child have to be to have time to make such a nuisance of himself? Um, and it's it seems like he is saying, you know, this is, he's torn because this is a young man who is mean. Um, and that makes him a danger. You know, he's he's worried about what that could mean if if this dangerous young man um, gets around his son and around his wife and things like that, that there is a threat there. But at the same time, it seems like he has some sympathy and, and you wonder why was he so lonely? Why? What led him to this kind of behavior? What underneath everything led him to be this way? Yeah. And it seems like that that's one of the big questions that Ames is asking. And of course that's all tied to the idea of like election, right. And predestination yes. Yes. and, and what's going, and that's what is troubling Jack himself and why he, and he wants an answer for it because he wants to be able to 
understand his own identity. It seems like, like there's all these questions of identity and how do you understand mm-hmm. yourself? Um, and it is, if you're worried that you are not part of the elect, so to speak, then what does that mean about how you see yourself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so and it, it, remind me denominationally, the Bowdens are, are they Presbyterian? Pre- yes. Yeah. So, okay. so yes. So Jack would have been raised Presbyterian. Yeah. So he, he knows this stuff. Yeah. Election is, is not in the background among Presbyterians. No, I mean, and, and he puts it, he puts it right in the forefront when he has that, you know, tete-a-tete with John yeah. in the church, uh, which is sort of half confessional really. And he's, he's admitting, right. That he was this kind of disturbed child and he's saying, What's wrong with me? Mm. Isn't this strange? Why don't I want these things? Why mm. don't I want to be like my father? What's and I feel like I, I mean I wrote this in the margin that this is just coming back to the question of, you know, am I non elect? He's he's putting it in that way. What what if I'm not the chosen? You know, convince me of it. And And he, he says if you convince if you could convince him of it, it probably would be much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't expect the book to end this way, but I do think she's laying it on very thick that uh, John Ames is definitely a father in some sense to, to Jack Ames and I mean to Jack Bowden and 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 Jack is struggling with some sense of rejection from this surrogate father. And of course, John makes the point that even at his baptism, he just he wasn't feeling it. Right. And and he mm-hmm. rejected he rejected the child. And he, he makes that comment that he wonders if the child knew that he was being rejected. And of course, that also fits in with the predestination theme. Right. If you're the if you're the. You know, if you're Esau and not Jacob, what are the implications of that? And he seems to be connecting all of that together. Angelina, your comparison either last week or two weeks ago of this is kind of pattern. It seems like it's patterned after Abraham's relationship to Isaac and also to Ishmael. I have kept thinking about that comment that you made, and I think it, for me, really helps me understand this book. I think that is a central metaphor of the book. It, well, one thing that's interesting is uh, the it's obviously the idea of rejection is a key part of how you know what Jack is feeling. The idea of am I elect or am I rejected or whatever. Mm. Um, but then, even to what Angelina is saying, he sort of says explicitly he has never been able to. John says I've, he's never been able to. I don't know if he says love, but accept young Bowton the way he probably should be. I think he says that towards the end of the reading we just did, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Bottom of 188. This is when he's talking about the, the um, that he his heart wasn't in it. He wasn't really blessing him during the christening, right? And he says, now that's just magical thinking. That is superstition. I'm ashamed to have said such a thing, but I'm trying to be honest. And I do feel a burden of guilt toward that child, that man, my namesake. I have never been able to warm to him. Never. Mm. Oh, what a tough thing to like admit to yourself, especially in light of this fear that he has that Jack Bowden will step in, will replace him, oh, could yeah. potentially do harm to Lila and to John's son. And what a hard thing to admit to yourself that you, at least in John's eyes, might be in some way responsible for creating the situation. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and just two paragraphs up from what I just read, his first thought when he says to, to Boughton, what do you name this child? And he says, you know, John Ames. His first thought is, this is not my child. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that just gets at the heart of it. He's, he's rejecting this offering of the surrogate yeah. son. I'm going to read the, the I'm going to read the paragraph that follows the one you just alluded to, Angelina. Page. Uh, so this is page 188. Uh, this is when John Ames is about to baptize Jack, and the expected name of the name that they expect uh, Jack to be baptized as is Theodore Dwight Weld. Uh, I thought that was an excellent name. My grandfather had heard Weld preach every night for three weeks until he had converted the whole Doe-Face settlement to abolitionism, and the old man numbered it among the great experiences of his life. But then when I asked Boten, the older Boten, then when I asked Boten, by what name do you wish this child to be called? He said, John Ames. I was so surprised that he had said the name again with the tears running down his face. It simply was not at all like Boten to put me in a position like that. It was so unpresbyterian in the first place. I could hear weeping in the pews. It took me a while to forgive him for that. I'm just telling you the truth. Oh, it's worth reading the next paragraph also. If I had even an hour to reflect, I believe my feelings would have been quite different. As it was, my heart froze in me, and I thought, this is not my child, which I truly had never thought of any child before. I don't know exactly what covetous is, but in my experience, it is not so much desiring someone else's virtues or virtue or happiness as rejecting it, taking offense at the beauty of it. This is there's some difficult passages in in this section, in part because I feel like he's it, it, this is some of the most confessional pages, yeah, that he's had, and he's gone through these processes of like working through how he feels about all these different characters, but in particular Jack, of, of course. So earlier on, he's trying to figure out how he feels about his grandfather, and then his father, and how he fits into that continuum, and then he's trying to figure out how he feels about Jack, um, and. In some ways, I sometimes have asked myself, why exactly is he as angry as he is at Jack? Mm. Um, is it that he has shamed his family, to use the words that, that, that John uses, um, and therefore hurt his, his best friend? You know, John's best friend is Jack's father. So is that why he dislikes him so much? Um, is it that he abandoned the community or is it at least in part out of some sort of sense of like moral superiority in a way? And so mm -hmm. he looks down on him like a sort of, you know, uh, not, not, not that he's wrong to feel that way, but is he recognizing in himself that, and that's why he's not sure how he's supposed to feel about him while at the same time recognizing that as the godfather to the child, there's a, there are certain things that were demanded of him, but he right. never, never was able to, somehow was never able to meet that and never really understands why. And like, could he have done more for the child, for, yeah. for young Jack? 
And so it's this, it's so confessional. And that's, I think for me, the thing that makes the book hard is not even that he's dying um, or that he's leaving a young child and a young wife behind. I mean, those things are, those are hard things, right? But those are life things, right? That people die, right? Um, and I don't mean to make, make little of that. I hope that makes sense. But th- what, what is difficult in some ways is, is, is Jack who, I mean, John, who isn't otherwise, um, honorable man right and it seems like he there's something lacking in him in the way that he relates to john to, to jack these names are killing me um <laughs> and i think obviously this is robinson does that on purpose right she the jack and the john thing going together and all that um uh but it seems like that is there's there's a flaw there in him but then at the same time how do i how am i how am i as a reader supposed to feel about jack I know. It's still a mystery, isn't it? So what was interesting to me about this section is it's the first time that we actually get a little bit insight into into Jack, right? Into how he feels about all this. Because we know that John is super conflicted about how how, how do I, you know, I I have fear about this guy and he's disappointed me and I kind of feel like he's a bad apple. But I also want to be open-minded that maybe he's changed and maybe I'm not being charitable. Um, But we get some insight now into Jack's same sort of ambivalence, right? So if we just objectively look at, if we take the whole backstory away and the loaded emotions between the two of them, and we just look at his behavior in this section, he comes in humility, right? And Mm. asks respectfully if he could meet him, meets him in the church. And I love the detail that he had shined his shoes and dressed up. That's a very respectful act. Yes. Yes. Right. And he's, doesn't really know how to push it and feels like he's flubbing it and keeps apologizing. I'm sorry. I'm giving offense. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then John takes offense and then says he's, he's sorry too. And they're just, they're just fumbling and stumbling over each other. It's so painful to watch. Right? Like, so like, brittle they between. Just, I know they can't connect and you feel like maybe there's something real that needs to happen here. And they're just in their own ways. All this history is, is in the way. Well, and it, it really does seem like, I mean, it's true to the way broken family relationships would work. You know, yeah. it's it's odd to think of of an older man and a younger man that are not related to interact in this way, where like they're trying to trying to find a way to connect mm-hmm. and it's not working. Like you could yeah. see that being, um, you know, Jacob coming home much later in his life and trying to make up with his family or something like that, mm-hmm. or or a father and a son who have been, a, you know they haven't talked to each other in years and trying to figure out like you'd expect this of old Jack, Jack's dad, old Bowden and young Bowden. We'll just put it that way. Not between John and Jack, but we don't ever get anything in this book about how does Jack interact with his father, except that John Ames seems to be implying that his father has welcomed him home with open arms. And in some ways that I've almost seen, uh, Jack, if Jack is the prodigal son and he gets home and his father restores him to his seat, then it seems like John is not a father figure. In, in some ways, he obviously is, but he also seems to be like the older brother in the prodigal son story mm-hmm. who can't oh, accept yeah. that and can't, he doesn't know how to process that. Yeah. And he's like, why would you put him, why would you restore him? Why would you throw a party for him? You know, I don't know if that doesn't make sense. No, I, yeah. think, I think that makes total sense. I mean, and she foregrounds the prodigal son idea again in this section, connecting it to his thoughts on forgiveness. So he's that's still at the forefront. And and I thought it was just really interesting the way that Jack Ames uh, kind of recoils from the note of apology that he gives him. And it's obvious from his body language that he expected a rebuke. 
But yes. then he opens it and sees what it is and is, you know, relieved and, and open and reassuring. And then, of course, you know, he accepts he accepts the apology. But there's just so painful in the tension. And, and, and I know a few people on the on the Facebook page have kind of wondered, you know, what is the deal with uh, Jack and, and Lila? Right. Because it's clear in this section they're having conversations. But yeah. I don't I don't I, I honestly do not suspect anything untoward. I think Lila's loyalty and love for her husband is is not to be disputed. However, uh, I do think that um, I don't think she doesn't have all this loaded emotions about him, right? She can just see a guy who's coming around and wants to have some kind of reconciliation, and, but she doesn't feel all the weight of the suspicion and the wounds and the brokenness between them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't mm-hmm. have to stumble around talking to him like, like he mm-hmm. does. And I, well, I, I've read Lila. Um, oh, no. So one thing that for me, I think— one thing that really stands out in rereading this again, and if, if this isn't a spoiler or anything, but there's a kindred, there's there's some she senses a kindred spirit in him, and I'm not suggesting that their stories are identical. That she went and caused all this problem is returning home, but she has seen, and and it's implied so far in this book too. She has seen suffering. She like like John Am. She has seen things that have made for a difficult life. She's experienced difficult things, but I think when she looks at young Jack, she senses you know, a loneliness that she experienced. Um, if I, I, the, the sense of being an outsider, which is something that John has said that she clearly has experienced even after she married him. Yeah. She's felt like an outsider, even though the community is trying to welcome her in, in their own stumbling way. Right. So it seems like she recognizes there doesn't have to be anything untoward for her to recognize something. You know, there's a kindred spirit that, that, that she needs, that, that he is experiencing things that she experienced. And it seems like she is the one who's trying to, offer you know a a welcoming hand she's the one that's trying to be um hospitable Mm -hmm. if that makes sense and and john does he names what it is it's pity and he and so he doesn't suspect that there's anything you know inappropriate happening he thinks that she's pitying him and he goes on to say that that's a christ-like characteristic but it's also one he says that opens up women who feel that to bad men and bad things happening. And that's his whole dilemma, right? How do I tell her, don't act like Christ? (laughs) Because she's being right to pity him and to be kind to him. It's just that that also opens her up to potential danger. That's what he's worried about. Where's the line? Which is not unlike in some ways the way his grandfather was. His grandfather was, you know, trying to give everything away and showed pity to people who needed it um, or generosity or charity or whatever word you want to use. Um, to it to a fault almost and it opened him up to you know danger and sickness right. and all that kind of stuff and i thought it was i thought it was interesting the microphone just hit me in the mouth because that's pretty funny if you heard a big boom it's because david swung the mic at me and it actually hit me in the mouth i'm joking that this Ow. might happen so it really did happen that's okay it's soft and squishy is playing injured yeah. <laughs> injured reserve i'll just be i need a replacement tooth now we gotta we gotta have a separate patreon for that uh, bonus level you get angelina's teeth that david knocked out make a necklace out of it anyway i'm really losing my train of thought here but <laughs> i hit her with a soft the make softest thing i basically just just tapped her mouth with a pillow <laughs> is, is he accusing me of being melodramatic and overreacting? I have some children who would totally agree with that. <laughs> I have no idea what I was going to say. Oh, 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 I know what it was. The two people who steal are the grandfather and Jack. I thought that was an interesting connection. There's some, there's something between the two of them. It, it, there's some tie between the two of them metaphorically, you know. Mm. 
I mean, and, and the grandfather also can't fit in anywhere. How much, here's a question that I've been kind of wrestling with. How much does Lila know? How much has John told Lila about Jack? Well, he, it doesn't seem like he has told her much of anything. Right. Because the question is, for him, how much has, has Jack told her? He mm-hmm. even asks that. So I don't think she knows. I don't, I don't think that she knows many details unless Jack has told her. But she seems to be um, savvy enough to have picked up on things. Because she understands that there's, there's obviously some kind of a conflict or at least right. a divide between them. And she's because she's encouraged. She's trying to be a mediator. Like it's so interesting to me that she even goes back and forth between them carrying the letters. Do you, do you think that John has deliberately withheld Jack's backstory from her out of care for Jack? Yes. Is that is that what's motivating him to be relatively silent on the subject? Yes. Yes. I, I don't think he's told her anything. I think he's still wrestling with what is his what's the right thing to do because he's afraid. What if he is repentant? What if he is changed? And I'm sitting here, I'm poisoning people against him mm-hmm. because of his past. That's, that's very unfair. And, and that speaks, of course, we said this before, but that speaks to John's heart. Like he, it does. He is really struggling with doing the right thing. And, and he's honest about his struggles, right? Like, like, I might be uncharitable here. I might be the one in the wrong. I might be the one carrying the unnecessary grudge here. He says a few times he never really did anything to me. I mean, he did do those. He did steal things, but he gave them back. Um, and so the the stealing there is complicated, and and it almost seemed like a cry for attention. Honestly, yeah. like you got this lonely boy who seems to be singling out this lonely man, right? Because he wouldn't yeah. have had a family back then, and to take the picture of the beloved wife that was, you know, maybe he wanted, maybe he wanted John to come busting into the house and demanding its return. Maybe he wanted something, some kind of reaction, something. But he doesn't give it to him, right? And he doesn't tell the father, which is his own way of being kind, I guess. But it's a complicated relationship. I don't know how it to. It really is. I don't know how to make sense really of it. Is. I mean, I don't know that I can get to the bottom of it, except to on the other end to to recognize that, I, that a lot of families have have this, right? Um, I mean, of course, it can go just totally bad and you're feuding and you never speak to family members again and you just accept the brokenness and try to move on but then there's a lot of families i think where it's like this where you you don't know how to bridge the gulf right there's just a huge gulf between you You don't know how to bridge it and they're just oh those are some beautiful scenes so painfully painted for us of of the awkwardness and each one trying to make the start and, and and not knowing how to back back it off i mean it's very curious um why Jack is 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 having these conversations with John, um, except that he's just trying to mend the relationship. Yeah. Well, but also there is the the spiritual, oh, yeah. wandering aspect. The questions of, am I have I been rejected? Um, am I not elect? So that's that. You know, he there is a there. He's struggling with something deep inside of him, and certainly seems like there is a sense of. He doesn't seem like the kind of confident kid that would go around causing trouble. Like there is a there is a sense of I don't know if it's fear in him. But he's not he doesn't seem like that kind of kid anymore. I I agree and my my only point was if you are really wrestling with the question does God love me? The last person I would go ask is is a man that I thought hated me. Right. I mean that's not where I would find comfort for that. So it it, it shows 
what, a certain level of trust and respect, maybe respect that he respects that John will tell him the truth? That's, this is such a great question. Yeah. Is that the reason why he's going to John with this, what we think is a huge theological and personal question? Like, am I not one of the elect? Why John? Well, who's the alternative? His father is the only alternative, and his father seems like the more likely, not only the more likely, but, but the better be candidate. Honest. He won't be honest. Yeah, Angelina, I don't know if you could hear it. Angelina just said she, he, he won't he be won't. honest. And I also, I, well, here, I, Angelina, you, you say that again. Unpack that thought, and then I'll respond to something else. I don't think the father will be honest. I think his first response is going to be as a father and not as a pastor. His first he's response in, will to be re- to reassure, to be reassuring and forgiving and assuring that there's forgiveness and, and, and not wrestling with the hard aspect of maybe you aren't redeemed. I, I think also probably, so how do you ask, how do you ask your father to, yeah. to actually think about that idea? Yeah, like how, to give if a you're verdict a father, of your life, right? And there's a because just because there's a bias there, obviously, like to to confront the idea that your kid is not elect, so to speak. But also, if you're a kid, not like that, to to talk about things like that with your own father, who you have, in a sense, abandoned, um, or anybody, like it's hard to talk to your parents about things sometimes. Right. Yeah. Like sometimes some people have different, you know, it's easier for some people. It's going to be easier for me on certain subjects to talk to my parents about things than other subjects. And who knows mm-hmm. why certain subjects, who knows why our relationships over the years evolve the way they do and why they become difficult in the ways that they become difficult or easy in the ways that they become easy. Like there's a mystery to that. That is just an accumulation, accumulation of, of years, right. Of, yeah. of years of moments that, yeah. that that build together and they create, you know, th- they create kind of the, the tapestry that is the relationships. It's not, it doesn't just happen all at one time, and we can't explain why they happen. Um, and so I think there's, but there's also like a pride thing going on, I imagine, I think. And it seems like, it, especially on John's side, that there's pride there that makes the relationships difficult for him. Because like, he doesn't want to be seen asleep. He, every, every time he sees Jack or they have an encounter, He's thinking about how weak he is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be found asleep. He can barely get out of the chair. Um, he can't even deliver his own letters, you know. When he finally does, it takes this effort. He's constantly mm-hmm. thinking about his own physical limitations against this young man who is much more capable of things. Um, and then it seems like, on the other side, you've got Jack who recognizes that he's stronger, but he can't understand these things. And so he's trying to figure out, you know, there's this sense of there's this sense of pride and then this sense of um, lack of self-worth like it's just all these things that are commingling yeah. together to make the relationship complicated and neither of them to know how they should feel about it it seems like yeah I also think there's this kind of plot point right that that um, Jack's father has been sort of shielded from a lot of what Jack has actually done right so if he goes to his father and says I think I'm a bad person the father might say, what are you talking about? <laughs> you made a few mistakes. No we no we, we all make a few mistakes, right? But but yeah. John knows that he's been really struggling with kind of these bad desires and mischievousness and meanness and maybe even just being, you know, a bad apple kind of idea. But I also think this idea of confessing and knowing, uh, 
This section also sees us revisiting the idea of when Jack tells his father about that he's gotten this girl into trouble, so to speak, as they say, right? Um, and talk about a charitable spin. That time he says, but he didn't, he didn't have to confess it to his father. Like t He told his father because yeah. he knew his father would take care of the girl and the child, and that's why he left the car. Which made me think it wasn't a total abandonment. Like, he doesn't man up and do the right thing, but it's not a total abandonment to the right. point where he denies the child's existence and just leaves him to squander. I mean, yes, he leaves his family holding the bag. This is not an act of courage on his part. I'm not meaning to suggest that it is, but it's not a total abandonment. He, he knows he can, if he tells his father, his father will go try to make it, make it right. And they do. They try to adopt the child. So, I mean, he's right that his family will get him out of this. But he must have some sense of conscience to have confessed to his father, right? Don't you think? Yes, yes. And I, I don't think that – I just don't think he would have come back. I don't think he'd be having these conversations with John if he didn't have some sense of, some sense of conscience. Maybe even if his conscience is really deepening. Maybe it was not terribly developed before, but now it's it's – deepening in some ways and that's part of the reason for his return and for his pursuing these questions with these what must be horribly painful conversations to engage with uh, with John obviously the book Home which is told from the Bowden perspective gets into this a lot more but I was really intrigued by it very early on in this section on page 161 he's talking about the prodigal son and he's talking about a sermon that he gave um, and he uses the word restoration a couple times, I, and it stood out to me um, because it seems like in some ways Jack wants restoration. Um, and well, his 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 father can welcome him back into the home. He can't fully be restored to the community until he mends the relationship with Jack because Jack is the one against whom so many of his you know, he's the one who to whom he owes a debt. So much of the mischief. Jack is the one. I mean, John is the one that that Jack told things to. You know, Jack, John knows the most, and without the relationship being mended there, like he can't fully ever be restored. And I keep thinking about this idea of like the opposite ideas: re rejection and restoration, because he's concerned about being rejected not just by the community but by God. Mm. And he's but and then there's this constant you know, not so subtle references to the prodigal son and being restored. So those two ideas are the, the two words that kept coming to mind as we were reading these sections, rejection and restoration. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it seems like this is a story of different things being restored to different people. Like even the idea of a family, the, like the restoration of family being restored to John, even to though John, it's late yeah. in his life. David, speaking of that, you know, one of the things that has occurred to me during the last week of reading was, what is the relationship between the first part of the book, which is about John's fathers, to the second part of the book, which is about John as surrogate father? Is it just a relationship of kind of the metaphor of fatherhood and sons, or will we see something deeper develop? Is the first half of the book more closely tied to the second half of the book? Well, 
we'll have to wait and see, won't we? <laughs> that go, sounds promising. Go no, but go go on. Like t- talk a little bit more about what you mean. Like what what are you what what are you looking for in particular? And what in the first half are you are you looking for t- to be yeah. brought up again in the second half? Well, it just seems like he is in the first half of the book chiefly preoccupied with uh, his father's relationship to the grandfather, the grandfather, this stern abolitionist um, who reads the Old Testament um, as a book of pure justice. And John Ames's father <laughs> reads the New Testament, it seems like, as a book of chiefly mercy. And they're kind of conflicting their conflicting impulses on what the good life is and the kind of friction between John's father and grandfather. That seems to me the chief preoccupation of the first, maybe third or half of the book. And now we have switched to being chiefly preoccupied with John Ames's relationship with Jack Fountain. Um, but don't you think that and, goes and, together? Oh, absolutely, it goes together. I mean, it's the, but same, it seems, the, the, the tension between justice and peace is also the tension between forgiveness and you know giving the appropriate warning. Yeah. Justice requires that the whole community be alerted that a potential threat is in town, right? Yeah. But peace would require forgiveness and restoration. This is, I think, I think he's still feeling caught between those two those two poles. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's. Maybe that's where, and again, I'm trying to kind of like anticipate without having finished the book, I'm trying to anticipate what story, what story Marilyn Robinson is telling us. And I'm just curious about that relationship between the first part and the second part. And that's a great, I like that, Angeline. It seems like the, the kind of like the poles that are found within the scriptures between justice and mercy, he's now in that tension with Jack. And it's personal. It's not just theological. It's, yeah. it's deeply personal. And he knows it, right? He knows it. I can give sermons about the prodigal son and forgiveness and restoration, but I'm really having a hard time doing this in real life. Especially if Jack comes into his son's life. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I don't have any idea what kind of resolution we can look forward to. I know, I can't, I can't either. I can't either. I know, I feel like I know what family the resolution will be found in, but I don't know specifically where the resolution will be found. I, I, I'm very I, curious. I will say this: I think that after reading this section, I'm not suspicious of Jack Ames. I think he has come home for, for, for good reasons. In some kind of way, he's just wanting to make peace with his past, his family, John, find some kind of reconciliation and restoration, get some sense of forgiveness inside himself. I don't think that he has come to make trouble. He's been around I, for a while now and hadn't done anything. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this, and one thing I noticed is the number of times he says, I'm sorry. So every time, you know, he goes early in the reading, 162 or something, he goes to meet with John and he catches him asleep. And the first words he says, like John, the narrator makes a very specific point of this. The first words he says, I'm sorry. Mm. He says it again later. 
he sends by sending he says it multiple times throughout that conversation i'm i'm sorry i don't mean to offend john says i understand you know that he's saying when he says uh i can only think of god as uh the the man upstairs who bought the groceries i'm sorry i don't mean to offend john says mm. i understand they have their conversation a couple times more he says it he leaves he sends the note with lila to to john and in the note it says i'm sorry he doesn't ever open the note wow, from john David. and then john goes to him and when they go together he says i'm sorry again so we get these repeated instances wow. of him saying i'm sorry and the one thing if he's going to make peace there has to be a sense of confession. And it seems like those I'm sorry's are much deeper than I'm sorry that I have not been able to, that, that I'm causing you, that, that we can't have a conversation. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than the first time they met a hundred pages ago or whatever on the porch when Lila was sitting there and old, old Bowden is sitting there. And it seems like he's fumbling his way to some sort of confession, to some sort of where he's trying to do his part to make resolution. And, in some, and, yet, and John doesn't fully recognize that. Not that you'd expect him to, because they're all tied to very specific conversations. But as a character and as a reader, we can see that it has to be something deeper than just, I'm sorry, we're having a bad conversation here, because it's so repetitive. It's coming up so often. Um, and I wonder, is he at home also confessing? Like, is he saying, I'm sorry? Is he trying to make peace? Is he, is he making taking stock of his own sins? Um in the same way he seems to be trying to do with John. Because until he does that, there's not going to be a sense of resolution, right? Unless, unless, um, like he's fumbling his way towards repentance. And is yeah. John is John going to be offer grace? Is he going to be magnanimous? And it keep, they keep getting these little hints throughout where, John, where in John's head, this idea of grace keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. And even in the conversations about predestination, he says, I don't know, but I know there's grace involved somehow. And I mean, he doesn't say it like that. Um, so I wonder, like, there's this sense of repentance and then how is John going to respond to that? And John never quite exactly says you are forgiven. He says, I understand. You never get this sense where he says, I forgive you for the wrongs that you are trying to repent of right now. And it, I wouldn't say that it's in his court, but it seems like Jack is fumbling towards trying to put it in his court in his own way. And this is where the pride thing gets in the way for both of them again. And I also think the subtext of a lot of his theological questions is, can, can God love me? Am I forgivable? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, if, and if God can't forgive me, are you going to forgive me? Mm-hmm. If God can't forgive me, can I, am I going to be forgiven? Or even if God can forgive me, are you, st- are you going to forgive me too? You know, it's, it goes both ways because yeah, there's the eternal at stake, but there's also, you know, what can I, not only can I be restored to my family, um, but can these relationships be restored? Can, can they be mended or is it, or is all lost as far as that goes? Mm-hmm. And I think that John is seeing you, Tim, you asked about the previous parts of the book because in a way his father and his grandfather never were fully restored. There was a, they both were so prideful that neither of them confessed to one another the wrongs they had committed against each other. And thus his father and, had to go and search almost for forgiveness at his grand, at the grandfather's grave. And, his, and he literally buried it. He literally buried the relationship mm-hmm. yeah. um, to hide it. And go ahead, go ahead. 
Well, like while you're talking about the parallels, right? It's the death of the grandfather that forces the father to deal with it finally, right? Posthumously. And we've been wondering why Jack came back, and we've speculated that maybe Jack comes back because Bowton's at the end of his life. But maybe Jack comes back because he hears John Ames is dying. Hmm. Maybe he comes back to fix that relationship, which that puts a different spin on things. That explains why he's hanging around so much. Yeah. I, I, I have fallen in love with this book. I have arrived very late at my affections, but <laughs> I've fallen in love with this book. I read this week. I did a lot of the reading uh, last night, and I flew through it. And, and honestly, previously, I was reading relatively slowly. I was reading five or seven pages at a time mm-hmm. because I just was not sinking into it. But I read almost the entire reading last night in one sitting, and I had to forcibly stop myself. I'm still waiting on that one. Angelina, are you still reading... Are you still reading slowly, or you've not fallen in love with it? What? Um, I'm having that. This is the assigned reading <laughs> moment. Yeah. I'm I'm that student. This is the assigned reading, and so I'm reading it. I'm doing my assignment. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is it forces me to read books like Gilead. Gilead. I I. <laughs> I mean. I'll say this. I, I want to love it. And I'm holding out hope that at the end it's all going to come together, and I'll have I'll have that moment where I finally grasp the book and and yeah. fall in love with it. And I felt a little uh, affirmed and encouraged when when I heard Christine Parent say that it took her a while to fall in love with this book as well. So I'm not I haven't given up hope. I'm I don't have an official opinion. I'm not saying I don't like it, but it, it I, I've yet to have that moment where I have really longed to be in this world. Angelina, what does what do other books that you love have that this book doesn't have? And can you? I mean, you can answer both these. Since the mic's in front of me right now, do can you can you like or love a book? Uh, Trying to think of how to phrase this without that moment, without the moment Hmm. where you're just like, I have to stay here, or I'm dying to read more. or where even if it doesn't necessarily, maybe it's not a heart book, so to speak. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I always, the books I love, I feel like they have woven a spell on me. You know, that they have enchanted me. That I just, I have fallen under the spell of the book. Um, uh, that's the mystery, right? That is the mystery. I mean, I, I could say something like, well, the characters are relatable, but I mean, I, right. I mean I'm in love with right. Jaber Crow. I'm not a barber. I'm not a single man. You know, there, <laughs> there's very little about his life experience that I could say I relate to, although I relate to the human longings and, and love and stuff that he that he relates so to as well. actually in love with him. Not Jaber, Berry. It's not the same thing. Uh, <laughs> David said, you're just actually in love with him. No, Berry. Although, you know, he's single and there are very few of those guys left now, even if he is fictional. But... Uh, <laughs> So, no, I don't think it's something like, well, I relate to it. I just think there's something beautiful about the world, and I, and I like being in the world. Um, and, and, but also the world makes sense to me. I don't, I don't know that this world makes a lot of sense to me, even though I can articulate it. So can I love a book that doesn't have a moment like that? I don't know. I, 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 there's not very many books 
that are great books that I don't love, but there are some. And, I, and about those, I can articulate what is masterful about it and what is well done without still without loving it. But I don't know that yeah. I don't know where Gilead's going to fall in that. But I haven't had my I haven't had the magical moment. Would you say that this is a book that can fall into the category of maybe even if you don't love it, that that you can you you can get that sense or that appreciation of what makes it good? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it, it's beautifully written. It's sophisticated. It's well-crafted. Um, it's thematically very heavy. You know, I, I don't know why I haven't had the moment. The, the elements yeah. are... So maybe that's part of why I'm holding out hope, because the elements are all there. Like, all the things I love are there. And so maybe maybe that just... Maybe at the end, it's all going to come together, and I'll finally grasp. And maybe that's it. Maybe I'm not grasping the vision. I don't know. I'm not. I, I can't. I can't put my finger on what it is. And maybe it doesn't matter. Like sometimes, I mean, some of the books you guys talk about loving, I appreciate them more than I am. You know, spellbound by yeah. them. Um, and honestly, I think if we were spellbound by every great book it would be weird because it it i mean the the way we're we're spellbound by things is so unique to each of us uh, to our experiences in yeah. life to our personalities to the way we process things to the way we read to the things that are going on when we read a book like the things that are happening when we read a book are so important so like i talked about this with christine in the book when i first read home i was finishing college i had just gotten married i'm thinking about what it means to to be building a home, all this kind of stuff. So the moment that I read that in my life, it's the same with Jaber Crow. I was an older teenager, you know, the first time I read it. So you can imagine that there are just certain certain moments in our lives that that make certain books or cause certain books to, that, that make us make us amenable to the spell, so to speak. Right, right. right. That make it. That's that a make, great way of saying it. Absolutely. That make us the right kind of soil for. I mean, I'm mixing a ton yeah. of metaphors right now, but you know. Um, I could well pick this book up in a different season and be madly in love with it. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, well, let's. It's two thirty. Angelina needs to go pick up her daughter. Um, so let's let's call it a day. Let's um, let's just wrap up. But um, we are going to be doing just as a reminder. We're going to be doing um, the murder on the. Well, actually, there's no article at the beginning. Murder on the Orient Express. I discovered this that there is no article at the beginning. So we're going to do that next. We got two more episodes of this. Then we'll do Q and A Q&A stuff, all our bonus stuff, and we're going to do the, a couple episodes on the murder on the Orient Express. And then we're going to do. Uh, I know. I realized I said it. And then uh, we'll do. I'm going to be. That's going to be my problem the entire time we do that book. And then uh, we will do an episode on the movie. So hopefully a bunch of you will read it with us and then go see the movie when it comes out around Halloween. And then we can all talk about the movie and enjoy that. Maybe we can even get like a film person to come on or something and discuss this. so fun. The David. elements of that. Kenneth Branagh or Johnny Depp. Should we get Johnny Depp? Let me call Dame Judy, Dame Judy Dench. Exactly. Oh, you have Johnny Depp in your phone. No, I, I, I've You're, got a closer relationship with Ken. Oh, Ken, Kenny? Kenneth Branagh. Ken, yeah, Ken, Ken B. Um, you're an having actor, both, so I assume you have, been, yeah. you have you don't have all actors in your iPhone? I've got most of them Most, in my okay, iPhone. yeah. Not Jake Gyllenhaal, but everyone else. Right. Um, <laughs> Shaky. Um, uh, anyway, so, yeah, well, that's coming up. Um, again, it's our Patreon page is patreon.com slash close reads, so if you want to support us, you can do that there. Um 
please uh, subscribe. We I definitely encourage you to subscribe to the Close Reads Only feed. We're going to be changing up a bunch of things with our podcast network. Um, we're going to have three weekly shows. Those are going to be Close Reads, The Mason Jar, and a new show called Forma. If you've been listening to Quiddity, it's something similar to that, but it's going to be a weekly interview show with people who are in classical education, authors, artists, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a variety of different people. I'll do most of them probably, but then Matt Bianco is going to do some and Brian's going to do some. And we're going to have a variety of people doing a weekly interview with interesting people. And then we're going to have seasonal shows. So the commons is going to be seasonal. So it's going to be 10 episodes, 10 straight weeks starting um, on all saints day. And Brian's going to be looking at 10 key figures in church history. Uh, Matt Bianco has got a show coming up later on this spring that I'm not going to say anything else about. We have a big project with Wes Callahan coming out. That's going to be approximately 30 episodes i'm not going to say anything more about that but all these shows are going to have their own feeds and the reason we're doing that is because when you're looking at itunes or whatever the archives go like you they only let you have 100 episodes so older episodes go away very quickly so if these old shows have their own feeds it's easier to find older shows and to get you know more content updated more quickly so we definitely encourage you to subscribe to the feed you can still subscribe to the network if you want but things will be going very quickly there as we do new content there's just tons of new content that we're going to be doing this winter and spring so be on the lookout for that and again i just encourage you to subscribe all the more reason to become a patron keep the the podcast network going exactly um there's i mean there's gonna be i'm i'm really excited about all the stuff we have coming down the down the pipeline there's gonna be just great lots of it's gonna be you know, some of it's going to be heady and very resource-oriented. Some of it's going to be storytelling type stuff. Some of it's going to be interviews, and then some of it's going to be like ridiculous close-read-style stuff. Uh, <laughs> so there's just going to be hopefully something for everybody. Um, so be on the lookout for all of that content. Um, thanks, hey, to every- David. Yes, I'm doing a talk on the Velveteen Rabbit. You are. That is going to be in October, right? Yeah, that's going to be in October. You're doing uh, one of our literature webinars. I'm doing one of your literature webinars, and I'm looking forward to it. October the 3rd is when I'm doing it. Oh, so right after mine. Really? Oh. Huh. That's what I've got on the calendar. Maybe news you from, and Brian news should. News to me. I don't, no, I, no, I don't do those. So, <laughs> so anyway, if people want to know the exact date on that and, and figure that out for us, you can go to our website and check that out. Um, so there's just a ton of stuff going on. We're going to be doing a bunch of Instagram stuff and video Q&As, and we, we just have a bunch of stuff going. So just be on, be on the alert, you know. Get us in as many ways as you as you want. Social media, email, the website, podcasts, video. We've got a lot of stuff coming down the down the line. So, um, thanks to everyone who's been listening and leaving reviews and comments. They are greatly appreciated. Um, your feedback is is welcome, and we we try to improve. We try to actually listen to it. Um, some of some of it's just nonsense, and we'll just ignore it, of course. But just kidding, just kidding. Angelina, just give me a look. Um, you can't tell people that their feedback is nonsense. I'm joking. I'm joking. That's only for our secret staff meetings. Oh yeah, that's only for the secret. I forgot. Oops, secret meetings. Um, well, I guess that's it. I, we gotta let Angelina go pick up Karis. So be on your way, Angelina. Uh, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.